0: Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games, from the cinematic universe to television. This is Earth. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It. It's time for the Down and Nerdy podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Another year older and still going strong. It's episode 203 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. And in case you're not familiar with the history of this show, next week will be our four-year anniversary of being on the air. That's right, we started the first week of March. And, I mean, just think of where the show's come and all the amazing things that we've got to do and meeting some of you along the way. It's just been such a fun ride. I can't wait to do another four years and get to talk to great people like joe henderson who's the showrunner for lucifer who's going to be on the show this week going to talk a lot about season three going to ask him about his new project with the image Com- image comics skyward that he has coming out and so much more so we'll get the dirt from joe here coming up shortly but first let's do what we've been doing almost since the beginning and that's talking comics it's what we're reading on the down and nerdy podcast I am writer David Rodriguez, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Now would be a terrific time to pull out your long box, your tablet, or your laptop, because whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And I say that because we're talking about the terrifics number one from DC Comics this week with Ivan Reese and Jeff Lemire as the storytellers, Joe Prado helping out on the inks, Marcello Maiolo on the colors, and Tom Napolitano on the letters. The team, I can tell you this much consists of Mr. Terrific, Plastic Man, Metamorpho, and Linya Wazo, who we kind of get familiar with a little bit in the middle of this issue. Now, this is from the pages of Dark Knight's Metal, and it would definitely help fill in some of the plot holes if you've read Dark Knight's Metal, the main run already. Not exactly a requirement, though, to enjoy this issue, which I think can be said for a lot of the New Age of DC Heroes stuff. But of course, Some of these heroes we are very familiar with. As a matter of fact, in this book, again, spoiler-free here, Mr. Terrific's confronting Simon Stagg about what he's doing with certain Terrific Tech projects. Again, from the pages of Dark Knight's Metal, you kind of get an idea of what's happening there. Now, someone has a reaction to one of these projects, and maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler. I have to do this to, to move forward here in the book, and it sends them... Into the Dark Multiverse, which of course has been a big part of the story so far. Now this is kind of really where this particular book begins because one of the T-Spheres sets off an alarm and it actually leads them on an investigation that's very much the start of the adventure. And again, maybe a little bit of a spoiler here as well. This is where we meet Linya Wazo and we kind of get an idea of what her powers are, but not, I don't think we know the full potential of what she can be at this point. And what it does is it leads you down kind of an interesting road, but I can't really tell you too much about this book without spoiling it. So I'll just tell you how I feel about the dynamic. The the team dynamic is very interesting. I I think that this makes me want a Plastic Man comic a lot, and I didn't really expect that. And maybe maybe it's Jeff Lemire on that. It's just, if you like... What's going on with the Elongated Man in the Flash TV series? You'll really like Plastic Man in this comic. And speaking of TV series, reading this book really kind of reminds you the differences between the Mr. Terrific that we see on Arrow and the Mr. Terrific that we see in the comics, who's just strong, confident, and in charge. And just he feels like a Batman esque character in the comics. And then you kind of see. A almost complete 180 version of him on era Not that one is better than the other or that e- either version is bad, but it just feels like this is the Mr. Terrific that I know. So if you're a Mr. Terrific fan from the comics, this is definitely a Mr. Terrific that you will like because he's very much the leader in this group. And this is very much a setup issue for what's going to be coming in the Terrifics. But I think the team dynamic that they have here is, is very good. It almost has a Guardians ask feel, but a little bit more mature, if that makes sense. And you, you do have a fish out of water character here that doesn't really know anybody else, whereas Mr. Terrific Plastic Man and Metamorpho at least have a familiarity with each other. Then you bring in Lenya, and you don't really know what you have there or what the dynamic is going to be. Now that she's added to the team, assuming that this is even a team, because right now it's not really a team, but as you can tell by the covers and the fact that this is going to be a limited series, they are a team whether they like it or not, kind of thing. So going forward, it'll just be very interesting to see how they interact with one another, how Linnea progresses as we find out more about her, and the character that we meet at the end. What exactly does this person want from them, and where do they go from there? So. I'm very intrigued by this, and there was a lot to like about a lot of the characters. And I just it just feels right having Mr. Terrific leading a book because he's, he's a character that I think has been overlooked in recent years, and I'm glad that he's back at the forefront. Really quickly, just want to jump into the art. I mean, Ivan Rees is involved and Joe Prado. How could it not be amazing? I, I almost kind of glossed over that because it seemed obvious to me. That the art was going to be top-notch and especially a couple of the scenes like when the experiment's going on and everything's happening all at once the color is such a big part of that so i almost went through this entire review without talking about the art because i i almost just assume you see ivan reese attached to a project and don't you know the art's gonna be amazing but i'll go ahead and confirm that for you this is a pull for me just because i enjoyed if nothing else because i enjoyed plastic man But I am downright intrigued, and I think that this is yet another reason why DC's Dark Knights Metal has been a huge success, because it's given us a bunch of these stories that I really didn't expect to come out of this initiative. So bravo to everyone involved once again, and I'm going to keep reviewing these books as long as they're awesome, and that's been the case so far. Going to turn back the clock a bit for you now with the Labyrinth Coronation Number one, yes, for Labyrinth movie lovers, you're going to love this. It's Archaea, which is the imprint of Boom Studios doing this. Simon Spurrier on the writing. Daniel Bayless on the illustrations. Dan Jackson with the colors and Jim Campbell on the letters. Great cover by Fiona Staples. Now, again, it would help for you to watch the movie to really be able to appreciate this. If you have not watched the movie, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, this it will definitely give you context for what's going on and you... I, I hate to say this because I don't want to discourage you from reading this book. I think you should read it anyway, anyway, if you want to, but it's hard to get a real appreciation of what's going on here. If you haven't seen the movie or if you haven't seen it in a while, in a while pop it in, rent it and get yourself up to speed because it basically takes place while Sarah is making her way through the labyrinth. And of course you've got the baby there and the goblin King and the goblins themselves. And it's a, basically the whole book is the goblin King telling the baby a story and the Like the origins of most fairy tales, the true origins of most fairy tales, I should say, it's really a sad and tragic story, which I didn't really expect going into a book like this. Now, again, I'm not going to spoil the story for you. It's a very high society type story that much, I will tell you, and it's pretty obvious who the story is about, but the Goblin King's not going to confirm or deny it. It kind of gets confirmed anyway in the story, though, if you're really paying attention, so but but it kind of makes you see the story of the labyrinth a little bit differently when you read this and actually his motivations from a different angle for sure that doesn't mean you have to agree with what the goblin king is doing but it definitely makes you understand things a little bit more is the best way that I could possibly put this because and it also kind of shows you that what you're seeing in the movie goes back a lot further than you think. So it actually gives it the movie a little bit deeper roots. I'm not saying it like creates a universe or anything like that, but it definitely creates a little bit deeper roots to this story. And And it'll be very interesting now that this first issue has come out because it almost feels like this could have been a one shot, but you know, it's not going to be, there's plenty more coming. So now I'm interested to see, okay, where do we go from here and exactly how far does this story take us? That is my most intriguing thing from here on out. I've got to say art, pretty solid. Wasn't worried at all when I saw that Daniel Bayless was involved in this. Wasn't worried about the art at all. And this is one, I know that I've been tough on Simon Spurrier in the past in the show. I really, really have. This is one book that felt right for me. He, I, Simon did a very, very good job capturing this story and telling something that yeah, it can't be easy to jump into a movie that's so beloved like Labyrinth and try and tell a different story or go from a different angle or adding something to a story like that. But I think that that's exactly what he's been able to do here. And and, and it makes sense. You, it's not one of those things where it feels like it's forced in there just to be able to tell more stories and sell more books. It actually makes sense and adds depth, which is something that I I was kind of hoping this book would do in the first place. So for that reason, guess what? This is a pull for me as well. I've been a Labyrinth fan for a while. Not surprised at all that this one knocks it out of the park. And I'm not saying that this can't take a turn and end up being a little bit too long because I think this is a 12-issue series. So let's see what the pacing is like in this and let's see if you can keep it. it can keep it up. Maybe we'll revisit this in a couple issues from now and see what's going on. Coming up, it's this week in Geek Tammin, and I'm going to be giving you my spoiler-free review of the first five episodes of Jessica Jones Season 2 on Netflix. Is it worth it? We'll find out next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Simone Missick from Marvel's Luke Cage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Well, this week in Geek Tammen is going to be a different kind of review because I get a chance to see the first five episodes of Marvel's Jessica Jones from Netflix Early for season two, so I thought we'd talk about that this week and actually kind of preview Marvel's Jessica Jones instead of me waiting to give you my spoiler filled review. So here's the deal I am going to have to be very, very spoiler free here, so I'm going to be a little bit vague, but I, I am going to give you a general idea of what this show is about. Now, this definitely, as you can tell from trailers and stuff like that, is Jessica Jones trying to find out what happened to her. And that's where the story kind of expands. And one of the things I've loved from the first five episodes of this show is that this is a superhero show where it's a little bit selfish. And I'm saying that as a compliment because she's not trying to save the world. She's not trying to save her neighborhood or any members of her family or anything like that. She's trying to figure out what happened to her. And in essence, I mean, this is going to sound a little deeper than it actually needs to be, maybe, but maybe save her own soul, because this show, in its first five episodes of Season 2, gets deeply, deeply personal, and in a hurry, let me tell you. So, she's trying to find out what's happening with IGH and everything that happened to her, but what I also love about this show, in Season 2, is that there are a couple of very Very interesting subplots in this show as well. And one of them involves Carrie Ann Moss's character, Jerry, where, and again, I can't spoil this, but let me tell you, it is a very, very deep storyline that she's going to be involved in this season of Jessica Jones. And I, I don't want to confirm or deny whether or not it has anything to do with what Jessica's doing, but I will say this, is that you will see a lot of Carrie Ann Moss in this second season, at least in the first five episodes, and I'll be very interested to see what the reaction is from fans with the story that she has going on, because, man, let me tell you, it it is one of those things where, you know when you're watching a show, and it kind of deviates and kind of tries to tell another story while it's trying to tell its larger story? Well, this one does not feel like a throwaway at all, and it feels like something that I was actually surprised that we got to see in the show but it was a welcome surprise because it's such a good story nestled into everything that's going on with Jessica's investigation that that it's it's so worth it and and since i've only seen the first 5 episodes I, that's one thing i'm actually looking forward to seeing more about and that's not normal in shows like this because you want to know what's going on with the main character and the main character's story but at the same time i'm so drawn in by this story of Jerry and what's going on with her, that I can't wait to see what happens with that as well. And, of course, Trish, Jessica's sister, a big part of her story. And as you see by the trailer, she's kind of the one pushing her to find out what's going on with her. But we also get to find out a little bit more about Trish as well. We find out something about her past a little bit that that plays a role in this. We also see her and Jessica very much together a lot in this series and that's one of the things I like too about the first five episodes is seeing Jessica and Trish together there's such a chemistry there between those two obviously they're sisters they grew up together but at the same time I mean I mean it just feels like that's where Jessica's vulnerability is stashed you know it's stashed with Trish and that's kind of what brings her back to being a little bit more human because how could she not feel less than human right so it just watching her and Trish and the dynamic there and a couple things that happens between the two of them in the first five episodes, actually very funny as well. This show definitely has its humor and it's and it's Kristen Ritter doing that snarky Jessica Jones thing, sarcastic. To, this is, if you loved season one, you're going to love season two, I think, even more because Kristen Ritter just takes it to another level once again. And this is why Jessica Jones is... I mean, other than Daredevil, because I think Daredevil set the standard and it's really hard to hit that mark. All the Netflix shows, except for the first season of Iron Fist, I think have been good. But I would put Jessica Jones right behind Daredevil, only because Daredevil's been so spectacular, but Jessica Jones tells such a great story and took such a different angle on things in its second season than it did in its first season, that I think that this is one of those things that it shows you why Jessica Jones should be involved more in this universe, and why I was glad that she was a pretty good part of Defenders. This is a show I don't want to see end, and I'm worried about the whole Netflix, Marvel thing, and what's going on there, that this show might come to an end at some point. If it does, man, they are going to lose one of the best shows that Marvel has, period. Never mind in the Netflix universe, and we get to see other characters that you're very familiar with. With season one, I'm not going to spoil who they are, or what their roles are because I think that somebody from Netflix or Marvel will hunt me down so I will not spoil any of that but I mean let me tell you this is so personal and it does go beyond Jessica I can that much I can tell you this investigation definitely peels back a lot of layers and that's exactly what it is too she is her own client which is funny but at the same time it is still an investigation and there's layers to it as there should be in any good investigation so it definitely takes her routes that she didn't expected that, that she didn't expect in trying to find her own story before i wrap this up i do want to talk as vaguely as possible about the villain in this in this second season i can say one thing and that's it's different That much I can tell you because they don't make it very obvious from the beginning of the show or even in the trailers who the villain is or villains are. So I will say that it's different from what we got in the first season. That much I can tell you and tell you alone. I'm not saying that Kilgrave is not a part of the show. Not saying that at all. What I am saying is is that things are a little bit different this time, and that just shows the show's ability to to evolve and do different things and make this a very much real world story and a real world problem for Jessica because I mean superpowers are not I mean there there have been times where maybe in your life you've tried to figure out something that happened in your past or something that happened to you and that's what this story is it's deeply personal for Jessica and it's maybe the most personal story out of all of the Netflix shows, I know Punisher was a very personal story and, and dealt with a lot of PTSD and, and and similar themes with what happened with Frank in his past as well. But this one actually feels different, and and it's 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 a similar thought process, but it feels very very different and deeply personal. And I really get that connection to a lot of these characters, and I want to know what happens to them, and I feel like. I'm on that journey with them. As corny and as cliche as that sound, that's, that's exactly what you feel like. And there are a few characters, new, uh, new characters that we get introduced that kind of throw a monkey wrench in Jessica's plans. And what happens when a monkey wrench gets thrown in Jessica's plans? Exactly. You will not be disappointed if you love the character already and you loved the first season of Marvel's Jessica Jones. I think this one so far in its first five episodes is even better. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning here, and again, I'm not going to spoil anything, but there are a couple big reveals in this show as we go along, but the end of episode five, which was the last episode I was able to watch, made me go, oh my gosh, how can you end it there and not let me see the next episode? Normally, this is one of those things where you're binging it on Netflix, right? Right? And you're like, well, now I can't stop because now I have to see what happened there. That's how I feel, but I can't keep going until March 9th now. So I am stuck on the image that I got from that final few minutes of that fifth episode. And I have to now wait until March 9th to find out what happens. It's going to be well worth the wait, but I'm just warning you now. Once you get to episode five, that's going to be one of those instances. You're not going to be able to stop. You're probably not going to be able to stop anyway, but definitely not after episode five. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of the first five episodes of Jessica Jones. Up next, plenty of nerd news and a trailer that we'll get to first next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Plug in those Ethernet cables and get ready for a ride because it's time for nerd news. And We're going to be talking about the Wreck-It Ralph 2 trailer, Ralph Breaks the Internet that was released this week. Maybe I'm just a sucker for this movie and these characters. Maybe I am, but I mean, you see it because it follows Ralph and Vanellope through through the Ethernet cables after being plugged in and into the internet. Now, I kind of at first thought that this movie was going to be more about mobile gaming and the updated gaming and stuff like that, them being video game characters, but then I see this trailer and it almost seems like it's going to be a little bit more about the internet as a whole and and them exploring the information superhighway, right? And poking fun at stuff like eBay and the mobile gaming. And by the way, that part of the mobile game with the kid, I laughed out loud so hard because I've seen my son flip out when he's playing stuff and sees stuff that he's not expecting. So I have definitely been that parent that's been in the car and had that situation. So maybe it was more funny for me than it than it should have been because I've been there. But I mean just this just feels right to me and it feels like they're doing the exact right thing and it makes sense. It's weird because it actually makes sense. You know, you you plug something in and then all of a sudden it ends up on the internet, right? It wouldn't be the first time. That something like that has happened, or maybe the maybe the the ROM chip was updated or something, or, or, or ripped onto something, and that's how they get into the internet. And then you just see them exploring the different aspects of the internet. And and I know that there's a there's a worry that maybe this will be a little bit dated. And I understand that maybe talking about eBay is not the most relevant reference because eBay eBay's been around for a while. But I mean poking fun at the internet as a whole and like when he's walking through and seeing all the pop-ups and stuff like that and, and kind of getting sucked in by that I think the poking fun at the internet as a whole in this particular aspect can be very very entertaining even if it's stuff that we've kind of joked about for years and you have to wonder if it's going to deal with social media and stuff like that as well and I know that there probably will be at some point a heavy emphasis on mobile gaming but I'm just very curious to see What they decide to poke fun at, and what they don't, and I think that I'm just gonna gonna go into it as just that. I know there's gonna be more to it. Obviously, they say Ralph breaks the internet, so there's gonna be some time where Ralph does something, and everything goes wrong, and everything goes haywire. And maybe it's because he's putting himself in positions that he shouldn't be in. Maybe that's part of it, but. I'm just I'm very interested in this. I'm all in on Wreck It Ralph 2. Ralph breaks the internet because I loved the first one, and I that's the other thing is I don't expect this to necessarily be anything like the first one either. So I'm looking forward to that aspect as well. And maybe they find friends of theirs along the way that have been in the video game world that are now on the internet. Maybe they can explain it a little bit to them or something like. There's just so many avenues that this movie can go that I'm excited to see which one it chooses or which ones it chooses because I think this one's just going to be fun and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that that it's something that, that Disney should be doing with this movie right now and I'm glad it looks like they're headed in that direction. Speaking of things that should or should not be done, and this is going to be a very interesting discussion because Deadline is reporting that Kristen Wiig is in talks to play Cheetah in Wonder Woman 2. Now, before I go any further into that, we're talking about Barbara and Minerva here. That looks like it's going to be the cheetah character that's going to be represented in this movie. I know the timeline for the movie has been confirmed, and yay, and that does not matter at all when you see that headline. Okay, so apparently Patty Jenkins has had her eye on Kristen Wiig to be in this world for a while now. And it wouldn't be the first time that Kristen Wiig has played a serious role. So I know that, you know, you think from Bridesmaids and other comedies and, and Saturday Night Live and, and, and stuff like that and working with Tina Fey. But listen, I know uh, my gut reaction to this too was why the hell would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. I don't see how that works at all. There are and, I not that I'm thinking I give you a thousand names off the top of my head. But I felt like there were so many other choices that they could have made for this. And again, it's not a done deal either. This is a rumor, but how can you not flip out about it? Because it just seems so, so different. And I'm I promise you, even though I'm gonna bring up his name right now, I'm not gonna play the Heath Ledger card here. I've played that card a lot. I hear that card get played a lot when it comes to castings that don't seem like they make sense and maybe it'll work out and maybe it won't. Here's the deal. This one is, (laughs) you either trust Patty Jenkins or you don't, I guess, is what this boils down to. How much trust do you have in Patty Jenkins and the decisions that she's making to do the right thing here and cast the right person for the part as Cheetah? That's all I really want is the best person for the part. I mean, I, I'm thinking Lena Headey right now for Cheetah would be really, really good. So, I, but but again, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be her. I just want the best person for the job. And if Kristen Wiig is that person and she knocks it out of the park, more power to her. But still, I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but by her body of work, you have to look at Kristen Wiig and say how on earth is she going to play Cheetah in a Wonder Woman movie that, again, is so, so important because Wonder Woman is pretty much the only thing DC has had to give them any kind of a momentum in their movie universe. And this is before Aquaman. Aquaman could be amazing, and that could certainly push them a little bit further ahead. I understand that. But at the same time, this is something you need to get right, and I hope that if this comes to pass that Kristen Wiig is the right woman for the job because if she's not, if you derail the Wonder Woman movies in its sequel and that starts to go south and you lose trust in the Wonder Woman franchise, first of all, everybody will be really upset because the first one was so amazing. Second of all, where do you go from there? I mean, honestly, where do you go? Because let's, just, let's face it, even though I've been a champion for a lot of the DC movies, that have come out, and I've liked them certainly better than most fans. Let's just say that you need fans to have faith that going forward, you're going to be able to make good movies, and that's what's hurt. Movies like Justice League is they haven't really given us that trust level that they are going to get put out a top-level movie that everybody's going to want to go see. So I understand the fans are freaking out a little bit and maybe you don't trust, you trust Patty Jenkins, but you don't trust DC kind of thing. Totally understand that. But this one to me is very much a wait and see because again, it is, it is a rumor. And I know we don't know, really talk about rumors on this show, but this one's just too big. And it feels like the whole in talks thing. And there have been meetings. We know there've been meetings between Kristen Wiig and Warner Brothers. So Uh, I don't know. This is one of those ones that makes me really, really nervous. I know that the look will be CG, so I'm not worried about the look at all. That'll be fine. That's the least of my worries. What I worry about more than anything is that this is just going to get derailed because of a casting decision for what amounts to be a name and not necessarily the right woman for the job, but maybe she is and she will surprise us all because, again, it's not the first time that she's played serious. Here's something that's very, very serious, and that's Neil Gaiman bringing a Sandman imprint to DC Comics. This, according to Entertainment Weekly. Now, it'll start with Sandman Universe, which is going to come out as a one-shot in August, and it's going to have four new books, and Gaiman's going to oversee them, though, not going to be writing or anything like that, so he's just going to be overseeing. We're going to see some new characters introduced, some new concepts as well, but we do know that they've released the fact that Dream is missing, and there's kind of a rift between worlds and a few other things going on, so this is what we're going to have, and Nalo Hopkinson's going to be involved as a writer, Cat Howard, Dan Waters, who we've had on the show, Cy Spurrier, and Billquist. Everly is going to be doing the art, Bilquis did an amazing job on Wonder Woman, not worried about that at all. And not really worried about the writers at all, either. I mean, I know that I've, I've reviewed Cy, one of Cy Spurrier's books early on the show, and I've talked about how hard I've been on, on Simon. But at the same time, y- you know, there's a lot of talent here involved in this universe. And to me, I mean, it's certainly DC Comics is not afraid to take risks with their imprints. I mean, Young Animal was a risk and that and that's something that you could... I mean, it's a matter of whether you think it's been a success or not. They are not afraid to take that risk. The young adult imprints that they just announced, they are not afraid to try and do something different and target niche readers. And that's one thing that I think that you look at Vertigo as a whole, and while that was supposed to be like the serious side of DC, right? And it's kind of lost its way. It didn't really have... A whole lot of direction as to what is Vertigo. When I see that Vertigo logo on a comic now, what is that? Because I think that that has kind of passed the comics world by, right? Where you've got something that is supposed to be the serious side of DC where we tell different stories is too vague now in the comics reading world, right? That's why you have stuff like Black Crown, that's the weird stuff, on idw's side right so you have to have more specific imprints now i think to let fans know this is what we're giving you so whether you think that there's enough content there or not in the Sandman universe to justify an entire imprint. If you're going to be bringing in new characters, isn't that the argument that we make all the time? Give me new characters, give me new things to be interested in. Because obviously the Sandman books have had a great following over the years and we still talk about them to this day. So there's something there. And of course, everybody losing their minds when we saw Sandman as a part of, when we when we saw these characters as part of Dark Knight's Metal as well, right? So there's something there and DC is not ready to let that go yet. It, it's not like this is going to be a major imprint that's going to be putting out three or four books a week. This is something that's going to be, you know, a, a, a division of DC where they're going to put out four books along with one shot and see what happens. And maybe these books have staying power, Maybe they don't. Maybe they turn off into other books, and we have more than four. Maybe this imprint starts to grow. But it's not like it's a huge risk, right? Because you're talking about four books in what is seems to be, at least on its surface right now, a smaller imprint. So you take a book that everybody loves and try to expand it. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but it just seems like a low-risk, high-reward move by DC. And I'm sure that Sandman fans are very very excited about it. Finally I'm going to be talking about another story that broke on Deadline and that's The Rocketeer is coming back but as an animated series. Now this is the interesting part for me when I saw this because when I first saw this story I'm like, "Oh, well, Disney XD is getting another good show." Nope, it's going to be on Disney Junior in 2019. It's going to follow a young girl named Kit who is going to be the Rocketeer. She receives the, the suit as a surprise gift for her birthday, and now she's off to do the good of the world as the Rocketeer. Now she's going to be joined by her gadget-minded best friend, Tesh, and her airplane mechanic, Uncle Ambrose. So there will be kind of a team aspect here. It's not like Kit as a young girl is just going to go out there on her own and start saving the world. She's going to definitely have help. But here's the thing. I know that if you're a Rocketeer fan, you're very, very excited about this news. I am i was definitely excited about this news. Here's the thing, though. Does Disney Junior temper that excitement a little bit? Because this is definitely going to have to be slanted younger than. If you're familiar with Disney Junior at all, you have kids, you know how it is. You have certain levels of... Of what Disney does with their animated series. And Disney XD is, you know, where like where the Marvel stuff is, and it's maybe more of a young adult animation. And Disney Jr. is definitely very much for the younger audience. So does that kind of bum you out a little bit? Would you have liked to see a Rocketeer that was for the young adult audience? Or are you okay with having a Rocketeer series that is for a young audience? And I'll tell you why I'm okay with this being on Disney Jr. Because I feel like this is a show that could definitely work there and tell that message and tell these stories in a way that appeals to a younger audience and kind of make this show the the show that is the next step in a child-loving animated series from Disney where you can go from Rocketeer and then start to transition into Disney XD shows after that. And I don't think this is necessarily a character that needs to tell serious Adult-themed stories, either. I think that this is something that can be done on an episodic kind of thing. It doesn't have to have a a linear story throughout the season. It can be episodic, where where she's saving the day, doing this or that, in just in almost like an odd jobs kind of way, where here's what needs to be done today. We're gonna do that and move on to the next day, and and you know have ice cream at the end or something like that. I don't know, but but th- that's the kind of thing I think that this show could be doing. So while I would have certainly welcomed a young adult version of the Rocketeer. I don't necessarily need that, and I think that this will be a very cool concept. That's going to do it for nerd news up next. We're actually kind of not done with the news. going to be talking to Lucifer showrunner Joe Henderson about all things season three and a little bit before that as well. We'll trying to get him to tease a couple things, too. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Hello, this is Tom Ellis from Lucifer on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You
0: know, it was only a matter of time before we talked about Lucifer again on the show because it's one of our favorites. And speaking of one of our favorites, of course, it's this guy here, showrunner Joe Henderson. Joe, how's it going,
1: man? Pretty good, pretty good. We are currently breaking the last episode of the season, so like, I'm, we're we're almost there.
0: Oh, we're gonna get to that here in a second, believe me. But first, I, there <laughs> the, now it's been a while since you've we've had just you on the show. It was actually, I think, before the pilot even aired, and there were two things that I vividly remember from the first time I talked to you. The first was how much I obviously love the pilot. And then the second was me asking you how the diehard fans of the comics would react to the show. So now that the show's in its third season, with one of the most passionate fan bases in television, talk about the Lusa fans and how amazing things have been since you started.
1: Yeah, I gotta say, it's been really cool, because uh, for one thing, I feel like a lot of the comic fans just, immediately delineated it as just something different and that's okay and that was such a relief because I as we discussed way back when I'm a huge comic fan I was a huge fan of the original book and even I when I heard they were doing it was a little put off I was like ah I don't know if I want my uh Neil Gaiman Mike Carey Lucifer doing all of this and then when I saw it and was like oh I see what they're doing this is just something so different and I was hoping that everyone would go on the same journey I did and luckily they did and then we've also just picked up a whole different audience of people who really love the show and care about the characters and it's it's been pretty incredible and we have an incredibly awesome loyal fan base it's it's kind of nuts and you know everything we do we sort of do to keep keep telling the stories that will hopefully keep them entertained.
0: Speaking of different, I want to dive into this right away. And it might be a little bit of a spoiler for anybody that didn't see the news that broke this past week about Kane's brother, Abel coming to the show, but as a woman. So take us inside that decision and how that played out in the writer's room.
1: Okay. Cause this is actually one of my favorite um, pitches that's ever happened. Uh, so, I, I co-run the show with Ildi Modrovic right now, and she and I are usually both, one of us is usually in the room at any given moment so that we keep the room going. But in this case, both of us were out on cuts, on whatever, and we both come in and the room's like, we got something crazy for you. <laughs> and we're like, okay, okay. They're like, we know we've been talking about Abel. We know we've been wanting to bring him back. Here's the pitch. And all credit to the room, who had just come up with this absolutely, awesomely batshit pitch of, what if he's wandering around in the body of a 25-year-old woman <laughs> and go? And so a lot of it was playing with the fun of, okay, how would that work? Who is Abel? Uh, if Abel is, is, was he in heaven? Was he in hell? Uh, but the really fun of it is the fun to me of working on TV shows in particular is every now and then the writer's room comes to you with an idea that you never would have thought of, and you're immediately like, yes, that, that is a toy I mm-hmm. want to play with. And it really times out great because so much of the season is about siblings and brothers and well, in this case, brothers slash sisters, uh, Oh yeah. And and exploring all of those dynamics and Lucifer seeing a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a reflection for himself in Cain, this guy who's you know, who killed his brother, who feels like he's been persecuted for it. Like to me there's a rivalry between Lucifer and Cain of who got screwed over by God more. Like who's being punished for things they don't understand? Because one of the things we'll learn in the episode is Cain doesn't think that he murdered his brother. He thinks he and his brother got into a fight, and one of them was going to kill the other he just won. Mm -hmm. And that was a big important thing, is to make sure that Cain was the hero of his own story. Which is, we were at each other's necks, I'm just the one who got the lucky hit.
0: I hear you, and I, I like that you, what you said a couple minutes ago about the theme of this season because I feel like even before the Kane reveal this season, there wasn't really a major emphasis on that relationship between Chloe and Lucifer this season, at least from Lucifer's perspective anyway, until recently. So, considering that we almost saw that big moment between the two of them this past week, where do you think their relationship stands right now?
1: It is, yeah, okay, just like, like, with the big ending, with the dance and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, by the way, how oh that was just I love that moment. Like those are the moments that to me are the bread and the butter of the show is It was magic. Lucifer and man. Chloe. Magic oh, it was, oh, thank you. Yeah, I and the two of them are just so awesome at, at selling a genuine well, they have a genuine chemistry. They genuinely love each other in as much as they love working together. But uh but yeah, it's it's always the ebb and flow and to me the the heart of the show is Chloe and Lucifer and the thing that we always want to do is take two steps forward, one step back, two steps back, one step forward. So now they're getting really close, so of course what we're going to do is put a giant wrench in the works. And uh-huh. it might be it might be, you know, um Tom Welling shaped.
0: Oh yeah, I think that we've gotten uh, little hints of that here and there and uh, well, how do you, how do you think that I mean eventually it's almost like all the cards are going to be on the table at some point and Lucifer's going to really get wise to it. And with this whole relationship between Lucifer and Cain, I mean, could that really change things dramatically later this season, maybe?
1: We are... As far as I'm concerned, our show is a show that always needs to fight for its supper, that always needs to prove itself. And by that, I mean we have to take big swings. We have to be the show that is not afraid to do some weird, crazy stuff and to shake things up. And we've got some big stuff coming up at the end of the season, that I think will reflect that if I can play my vague game uh, enough. But uh, the relationship will between Chloe and Lucifer will be irrevocably changed, and at the same time, um, both broken and strengthened. And uh, just we're we're going to keep on moving forward with them.
0: Let's go on to the broken line a little bit here because we're in a relationship that I've really enjoyed this season is the one between Amenadiel and Dr. Linda. Now we saw that take a bit of a turn in this last episode, but what has it actually been like to give fans more of a deeper look into the Doctor's character this season?
1: Oh, it's been awesome. It's it's honestly it's been something it's like an itch that we've been wanting to scratch because Rachel is so good and she can play I mean, she can do comedy, she can do drama, she can do everything like so much of our cast. But her function on the show has been so much of the sounding board, the uh, the reflection on the people, the, the therapist. And so to be able to actually dig into her character this season and really tear it apart a bit, put it back together, and give Rachel a chance to show off a bit has been awesome. And also just the different character combinations. Like getting a bunch of scenes of Rachel and DB together was so much fun because they have such a great dynamic. And I mean – the the, uh, the Mays-Linda relationship primarily exists because we put them in a scene together in season two and they just crackled and we just started writing to it because we loved it. Um, so getting her out of the ther- uh, therapist's office and out in into our world has been just such a delight for us and something that we'll keep doing.
0: You said fundamentally changed, and I wanted to actually take that to Maze right now, because she's the other part of all of this, of of what's going on between the two of them, and her reaction, kind of reaction to everything, and it really came to a boiling point. Talk about that internal struggle that she, she seems to be going through right now, not just with that relationship, but just as a whole, and how much she's fundamentally changed since season one.
1: I mean, so Maze was our our demon. She's She was like the darker version of Lucifer. And so one of the fun things was having her sort of a step behind him when it came to arcing uh, towards humanity. And I think whereas Lucifer delights in these emotions he's experiencing and these things that he's seeing, Maze is kind of terrified by them because they're unfamiliar and strange, and when things are unfamiliar and strange, she stabs them. So uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, pretty much: exactly. so it's it's she's just so much more um of a violent id. Uh, that the fun has been exploring that with her and basically playing with the idea that, you know, in, in, in season one, it was, it was about her, you know, coming to terms with being on earth. Season two was about finding a family and uh, a family of people she actually liked. Season three, a lot of it's been family's hard. Mm-hmm. Emotions are hard. Emotions are torture. And she's supposed to be one doing the torturing, not being tortured. Mm-hmm. So, that's been fun, and is is really challenging that character. Okay, if you want to be human, if you want to have a soul, or at least think you do, be careful what you wish for. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Now we've talked about some pretty serious stuff, Joe, so let's change things up just a little bit and talk about how fun the show is, because there's been so much fun this season alone. A couple of my favorites <laughs> was when Lucifer and Ella go to Vegas, and then the other one was Lucifer and Pierce going undercof- undercover as the gay <laughs> couple, which was so great. So what's been some of your most fun moments so far, and is there something coming up that you know fans are just going to love?
1: Um, yeah, I, the, 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 the Pierce-Lucifer was like the pitch that we kept waiting for someone to swat down because every show does um, two of the characters go undercover in suburbia. It's a chestnut, it's fun, it's always good, but usually it's your lead couple that everyone wants to see together who has to pretend to be together. And for us, it was just such a fun opportunity to bring those two disparate characters together in, like, and just subvert the trope a little bit, while also leaning into the trope because the trope is there for a reason because it's super fun. Mm-hmm. So those are the things we love doing. We've got oh man, uh, we have the return of Lucifer uh, coming up. Yes, Lucifer, and uh, yes. Dan will be oh, it's it, one of my favorite things. Uh, that'll be that'll be coming up uh, in a, in I think like six episodes. So two of them together again, except uh, you know with a a little bit of a new twist, but just basically just whenever Lucifer is is just teasing and playing with Dan. Because Kevin Alejandro is so funny as oh, like yeah. the as the the sounding board on it, uh, that I'm really excited about. We've uh, got another girls' night coming up. Uh, it's actually the same episode. It's like our sequel episode where oh, we yes. call back. Uh, awesome. Yeah, and but this time we have mom there, so this time Trisha can be part of it. So like that's a lot of fun um, to play with all of them. Those are those are the big ones, and then we have and this is going to make sense when the adventure comes out. We have the strangest shout-out to the TV show Bones uh, (laughs) you have ever seen on television. And trust me when I say it's pretty incredible.
0: (laughs) Interesting, interesting. I I can't wait to see what's going on there. We're talking to Joe Henderson, showrunner for Lucifer. Of course, you catch that every Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox. Now, Joe, I want to take a break from the show just for a second because you've actually got something very exciting coming up of your own. You're headed into the comic book world. You say you're a big comic book fan. We know that. With a new story with Image Comics. So for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about Skyward and how the story came about.
1: So uh, Skyward is a comic book that takes place uh, 20 years from now. Uh, What happened was, say, tomorrow, Earth's gravity became a fraction of what it is. 20 years later, we've adapted. We haven't even just survived. We're actually doing pretty well. It's a low-G reality where you can you know, jump over a building with a single bound, but if you jump too high, you're not coming back down. Um, so to me, it's like my really, it's my, my 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 swing at a really cool, fun adventure comic world. It follows a 20-year-old woman named Willa Fowler who is basically trying to find her place in a world that is turned upside down. And uh, uh, Lee Garbitz on art, I don't know if you've, you're familiar with Lee. He uh, did this Loki uh, book, a couple of years ago, he was the artist on Lucifer. He is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's like gorgeous. And just it just feels very epic and large. And it's a really big sort of crazy story with a very, very personal heart to it of, a, of this woman trying to find her place in the world while dealing with her father who absolutely hates this world and what it's become because it's, it's not, to him, it's not supposed to be this way.
0: Definitely looking forward to that. Now let's let's go back to the show. And actually, when I talked to Trisha Helfer at uh, Comic-Con this year, everything was kind of very up in the air at that particular point in time and what would happen with her character. But how amazing has it been to see her make that transition from mom into the new Charlotte Richards?
1: Oh, it's it's been awesome. I mean, for one thing, like, that was part of the conversation season two was we had promised her, like, we will only bring you back if, we have a role that is worthy of you and something that you can sink your teeth into and something you feel comfortable with. Uh, and so a big part of the end of season two is we really want to hold on to Trisha. She's amazing. She's so good. How do we make sure this, this character has enough to do that she'll be able to really play with? And then getting to watch Trisha inhabit that, play a character that's herself, but not exactly herself, but kind of still that character. It's, it, it, it's a master class in acting because you know she has to be similar enough that people aren't like, well, wait, you were a completely different person before because no one really thought that. So it's it's just such an impressive subtle performance that is just so much fun to watch and so much fun to write to because we had to shift it like before we were writing a goddess, now we're writing a woman mm-hmm. who still has quite a bit of sort of chip on her shoulder and goddessness, but she's a woman who in this case is in way over her head and doesn't know what's going on. Because she's missing time and oh it's been, been so much fun.
0: Now, Joe, I feel like this show is kind of a treasure trove of gifts on Twitter. I know it's usually my go-to for almost any response that I have, it seems like. So
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: Do do you have a favorite and when when do we see Twitter finally give you guys your own hashtag emojis?
1: Oh, oh my god, that that is something I need to fight for. I never even thought I've I've been like so jealous of all of the uh, Twitter emojis I didn't even think of asking for one. Well, we have one. We have the Purple Devil, I guess. So
0: Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we do have that. Yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, I love it. It's, it's so much fun. I pretty much, I mean, like, when I text my friends, I just send Purple Devils all of the time. And <laughs> I thought I would get really tired of it. To this day, it's pretty much just, like, you know how it has, like, your shortcut emojis after a while? It's oh, yeah. the only one.
0: You just have several purple devils lined up in a row.
1: <laughs> That's exactly it. It's either the, the smiley face or the frowny face. Go to town.
0: Nice. I love it. I love it. Now, Joe, <laughs> before we let you go, man, fans have seen on Twitter that you've been working on the finale. You were talking about it here at the beginning of the interview. And this show, man, has a history of big reveals and teases in its first two seasons and finales. So do you feel like the final moments of this finale top that and what teases can you give us?
1: Uh, yes. One thousand percent. Yes. I, I was incredibly proud of the season two finale. Uh, Cause I just, I, I love shows that wrap up the story and then give you the big, Oh my God, what's going to happen next season? Cause I feel like the audience should be satisfied that they spent this time and get their fulfillment, but then have that, Ooh, Ooh, I want that next year. And I thought the wings really teed us up. Well, they are nothing compared to how we are ending this season. And uh, it's actually it's my, f- my favorite episode of television I've ever written. Um, wow. And a lot of that is due to just my amazing writing. No. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it is due to the fact that we built all of these pieces and that they actually came together at the end and they just worked so well. And it's a very emotional, very personal finale with a lot of crazy stuff happening too. But... I just, it's the easiest script I've also written because just everything just was moving and it's, 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 it should be immensely satisfying and also drive people absolutely nuts.
0: Oh, I love that. One of my favorite parts about the show and we don't throw the word appointment viewing around on this show very often, but I always do that when talking about Lucifer. Make sure you're watching every Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox. As a matter of fact, you can always watch your favorite episodes again and again at fox.com or on Hulu as well. It's Lucifer showrunner, Joe Henderson. Thank you so much for joining me this week.
1: Thank you, man. And Skyward out in April.
0: Am I the only one that freaking loves that guy? I mean, that's one of the reasons why Lucifer is one of my favorite shows because everyone is just so amazing in what they do, but they're also hilarious and fun people. And that comes across, I think when you're actually watching the show and then when you talk about somebody like Joe who's who's running the show, writing the show, and a lot of the writers are so great too, that's what makes a show like Lucifer so amazing. And the way that it can play the comedy, it can play the drama, it can play it can just be heartbreaking sometimes. So that's why cuz Lucifer is just everything you want in a show. All wrapped up into one. And that's why I talk about it so lovingly all the time. So make sure you're watching every Monday night, eight o'clock Eastern. And as far as Joe's concerned, Amy, get Skyward, like he said, in April from Image Comics. Put that in your poll box. Tell your local comic shops that you want it. Pre-order it digitally if you can already. I, I should check before I say that to see if you can already pre-order it. But definitely get Skyward from Image Comics and Joe Henderson. And again, Thanks to him for coming on the show this week. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You want more information on us, you can even actually listen to Joe's first interview that he did on the show at downandnerdypodcast.com and all of our other Loose for interviews as well. Follow us on social media as always at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.